0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Well Said. Today, we have Ariel Davidson, Senior Policy Analyst of the Germunder Center for Defense and Strategy at the Jewish Institute for National Security of America. Uh, our topic for today is somewhat controversial, one although it shouldn't be controversial, as we hear about race and discrimination every day on the news. So, you'd think that we'd be able to discuss anti Semitism more openly as well. However, it seems that whenever I hear anti Semitism discussed, it is merely being acknowledged, sometimes condemned, but more often, um, you know, just kind of beat around the bush, categorizing it as something that can, you know, easily be solved. Um, And it's not ever gone into detail about what the actual issues are and what's going on in our country today with regard to anti-Semitism. And I think it's because people are afraid to discuss it, honestly. Um, Once again, our speech is being chilled and our thoughts are being manipulated because of the left's ability to pressure society into categorizing anti-Semitic sentiment as a political viewpoint via the cloak of anti-Israel and anti-Zionism. Uh, The world has a long history of this and some very recent memories, in fact, yet the parallels are ignored due to the one thing that has always allowed despots to prevail, complacency. A form of denial and inaction we are all too familiar with. Even more disturbing is what we have seen on college campuses. We have seen the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel, or BDS as you know it, take advantage of the campus environment, an environment of impressionable young minds, which are ripe for protests, activism, and the far-left agenda, which today, as with before, is once again interested in eliminating the Jewish voice. I have brought my good friend Ariel Davidson on this show because she has never shied away from speaking the (laughs) hard-to-hear truths, Ariel not only has a legal background, but also has done a lot of work on anti Israel anti Semitic movements in the US. And even though she is an American she understands more than most the important connection all Jewish people around the world have with their home country Israel. The safe haven that was established by an international community who bore witness to multi generational attacks on the Jewish people. So speaking of generations Ariel, I wanted to start us off with, do you think our generations different than the previous ones.
1: Do I think this generation is different?
0: With regard to anti-Semitic. Yeah, so
1: what's interesting is that as you know, the founding of Israel is, is fairly recent in history. So after World War II is when um we, you know, Israel was founded and we started to see its presence on in the international stage. It also became uh, because of that timing, it became sort of a landing pad for anti-Semitic sentiments. And so after the Holocaust, there was a collective reckoning, I think, in the Western world, with regards to how Jews are treated in various societies. And, you know, there, there was sort of this um, understandable suppression of anti anti Semitism. And, you know, that was, I think, part of, again, the Western world reckoning with the atrocities of the Holocaust. But when Israel was founded, it became a repository for all that anti-Semitism to be received, and it almost made anti-Semitism acceptable in polite society because now there was this political entity to which Jew hatred could be effectively directed. Um, so I think, in a sense, yes, it's gotten worse in our generation because now we're seeing, as you as you had in your opening salvo, we're seeing really kind of the normalization of of anti-Zionism, and we'll get into more discussion about how anti-Zionism or anti-Israel sentiment is very much fueled by by anti-Semitism. But I think there's an important note to be had here, which is that anti-Zionism has definitely been mainstreamed. Um, And especially amongst the far left and the progressive elements of the left, you'll see plenty of Democrats who are openly pro-Israel and I commend them because it makes it, you know, there's a bipartisan consensus, but you do have the progressive wing of the Democratic Party very much pulling the party to the far left. And we'll go into a little bit more about why that's a problem later.
0: Yeah, that's um, I'm really glad you brought this up, the, the issue of kind of anti-Zionism. It, and anti-Israel being also anti-Semitic. Can you explain? Let's just go straight into that question. I have obviously a few other things I want to go into, but since you brought it up, let's just go into it. How is anti-Israel also anti-Semitic? Well,
1: there's a few ways you could tackle this. So the first one is I always use this example because it's the most recent. You know, why did we see American Jews being attacked in um, on the streets of major cities in the United States during the last Gaza war a few months ago? What is the connection between? Uh, you know, Israeli military operations in Gaza and American Jews, uh, that, to me, perfectly crystallized the fact that you anti-Israel sentiment has become uh, a euphemism for anti-Semitism. And the conflation of the two, they've merged, I would say, horrifically and beautifully in those public displays. You had literal mobs of people uh, in streets in LA, in New York, attacking restaurant goers, asking, who's Jewish here? Who's Jewish here? This is utterly absurd. It's happening in the United States of America. Why is that happening? So that sort of, I think, really undermined the big progressive lie, which is that you can be anti-Israel and not anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, um, it's, it is it is virtually impossible. I love this analogy that Barry Weiss, who was formerly a columnist at the New York Times, she wrote a book on combating anti-Semitism. And she had a great analogy um, in her book. She talked specifically about how You know, before Israel was created in the 1930s or the 1940s, even, it's one thing to be anti-Israel before the creation of the country. It's an entirely other, different and new matter to be anti-Israel after the country has been created. It's like deciding whether you're going to have a baby versus after the baby's born, deciding if you want the child anymore. Um, This is in and of itself a very strange and very different conversation to have. And I thought that analogy perfectly encapsulated that. Um, you know the reality is if you if the, the chant that you see from pro-palestinian groups from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, that's not advocating for two states. That's not saying a Palestinian state and an Israeli state, that's saying the eradication of Israel. What does that look like actually in practice? I always ask people let's take that statement to its logical conclusion. It means eradicating a Jewish state that has afforded protections to the Jewish people because Jews have been chased out of every other country in the Middle East. You know, ask Egypt, where are your Jews? I think they have 10 left. Ask Iraq, where are your Jews? Ask Iran, where are your Jews? They don't, actually, Iran has a a decently sized Jewish community, but much, much smaller than it ever was because systematically you had around 800,000 Jews pushed out of North Africa in the Middle East and basically landed in Israel as a safe haven and a refuge. So in practice, it means a state that no longer is able to protect minority rights of Jews, which either means um, eradication of Jews, um, like, you know, either systematic killings of them or ethnic cleansing of some kind, or exile. Jews are forced to leave and either go to the United States or Europe, where, Jewish, you know, where religious liberty is, is valued to, to, to a certain extent. Um, and so that's why when people say, I'm just anti-Israel, you don't believe in the state of, you, you have an issue with the self-determination of the Jewish people, but not the self-determination of other groups of people. I find that very interesting and strange. Uh, and the, you know, the, the, the aspect of when we, when we talk about, well, from the river to the sea, it's a Hamas chant. I also want to note, it's also what the major union for New Yorker magazine tweeted out during the Gaza war. Um, So this is, again, when you said what is different about this generation, we're seeing the normalization of anti-Semitic rhetoric that really existed on the fringes, being sort of um, weaving its way into popular culture in the United States in really pernicious ways. Uh, Bella Hadid, when she was on her Instagram, uh, she was posting all sorts of images of herself at pro-Palestinian marches, chanting this exact line. She has 40 million followers. That's more than the number of Jewish people in the entire world. Uh, So like three times over. So this is the type of, again, the footprint social media has given an outsized platform to individuals like this to allow them to mainstream this type of content.
0: Yeah. Um, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, yeah, I was just gonna, I I think that's one of the biggest differences. Honestly, this the social media platform that has Given all of this normalization, it has allowed it to happen much faster because we have seen, you know, the normalization of anti-Semitism in society before, um, and that's usually what leads to ethnic cleansing and exile, mass exile um, of, of the Jews out of, of various countries. Um, but I, th- I think because it's it's so interesting with the, with the formation of Israel, because this is probably the first time we've seen it systematized where now, while being anti-Semitic, you can actually be anti-Semitic or even be politically, um, you know, anti-Semitic, but it's allowed because you're being pro-Palestinian. So Um, here's, yeah, this is, so Natan
1: Sharansky, he was a Soviet Jewish dissident, and he did, he has a great set of rules for figuring out when criticism of Israel becomes Mm anti-Semitic. So you'll never meet an honest person, tell you that criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. In fact, plenty of people, including Israelis, are some of the most vocal political dissidents and vocal political critics of their own government that you will ever meet. I mean, politics in Israel are so rancorous and so divided, you'll meet a ton of people who will criticize the government of Bibi Netanyahu, the government of Yair Lapid, or the government of Bennett. You will meet people across the spectrum doing that. So the idea that criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic is completely ridiculous. And I think you would be very hard-pressed to find anyone who will say that it is. Um, But there is a line that gets crossed, and I think Natan Sharansky does a great job of outlining when that line is crossed. He asks three questions. Are the alleged critics delegitimizing the existence of the State of Israel? Do they demonize the people and the country? And the last one is, do they employ double standards um, when engaging in this criticism? So a great example of that is there was this huge dispute over Sheikh Jara, which was basically an eviction land dispute that went through the Israeli courts. I can't think of any instance in which an eviction dispute became the center of national media attention, international media attention. Are people worried about eviction disputes in Naganar Karabakh or in Western Sahara or in other places that are alleged occupations? I mean, that if, if that were to occur in a village in Western Sahara if it got international media attention, people would be saying, why should we care? Uh, This is sort of the interesting double standard that you see and it only is reserved to Israel. It's only reserved for Israel. So that I think is, I think Natan Sharansky does a fantastic job of outlining, um, you know, why, or when I should say, criticism is no longer criticism but just a vehicle for anti-Semitism.
0: Yeah, and it's so interesting because you mentioned the delegitimizing of the state of Israel as one of the key indicators. I think it's one of the more, more obvious indicators, but it's also one of the most widely you know used reasons people um, kind of go after the Jewish population. They they think Israel is not a legitimate country, and I kind of the way I look at it is that how can you not call that anti-Semitic? You're basically saying, oh no, don't worry, I like you as a person, um, but I just don't think your country has the right to exist or your people have a right to a country. Um, So it's like that in itself, you're, you're automatically, you know, you're accusing an entire race, ethnicity of people of, of, um, that they shouldn't exist, that they shouldn't exist in the country or the borders that they they currently reside in. Um, So I think that that's, that's a really good way for you to lay it out. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about just kind of the various movements in the U.S. against, um, against the Jewish population, against Israel um, that are anti-Semitic. And Focusing a little bit more on the college campuses, because as I mentioned before, you know, these campuses are ripe for kind of protests, activism. So I think a lot of these organizations really take advantage of um, student activists, um, you know, just as we've seen the progressive left do many times. And I'm kind of curious can you go into a little bit about just, we've talked about the BDS movement. Are there other organizations that are also operating on campus? Um, And then what are your thoughts on the BDS movement overall?
1: Yeah, so the BDS movement. Uh, is very much confined to college campuses for now in the United States. You will have a few progressive members of Congress such as Rashida Tlaib and um, AOC and Ilhan Omar advocating for the BDS movement on behalf of the BDS movement, but we're not seeing it institutionalized in any real meaningful way. In fact, um, almost three dozen states in the United States have have passed anti-BDS resolutions or anti-BDS laws, I should say, not resolutions, but laws, where essentially the state itself will not contract with a business that engages in that type of discrimination. And there are lots of people that will say this is a First Amendment violation, all sorts of things. But if that's the attack, then that should be that could be used for all anti-discrimination legislation. Um, so right now the states, states don't contract with companies that engage in um, either discrimination against uh, first sexual orientation or gender or anything like that. And so the BDS movement by its inherent anti-Semitism, which we will also get into um, and kind of ties into our prior conversation, is considered a form of discrimination and many states have decided they're not going to contract. It doesn't mean that you can't join the BDS movement if you are a company or an individual in a company. It doesn't mean you can't promulgate BDS rhetoric. It doesn't mean you can't Publish any type of literature you want, it just means that states will not contract with you or an individual state will not contract with you. Um, So it isn't really, it doesn't at all touch upon First Amendment issues. But going back to your initial question, so that in and of itself shows you kind of how BDS is contained to the college campuses. That's in the United States. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: In Europe, it's a very different story. Um, You know, BDS has, I think, a little bit more Political clout and cultural clout within European politics, and you see that with in a lot of the uh, the, the EU's rhetoric, um, the idea that uh, they had recent labeling laws about two years ago regarding any products produced in Judea and Samaria, um, they were going to be labeled with you know occupied territory on them. Uh, You're not seeing those labels, again, for products from Western Sahara or or Nagorno-Karabakh. You're only seeing it for products produced in Judea and Samaria or what some people call the West Bank. So that, again, is sort of a good example of kind of how the EU has institutionalized BDS sentiment a lot better than, I would say a lot better, a lot more effectively than BDS activists in the United States. It's much more, like you pointed out, a college campus phenomenon. Um, but they do have some support from progressive counterparts in Congress. What does it actually look like in practice? It's a lot of um, either pro-Palestinian groups, the two groups that come to mind on college campuses are Students for the Justice of Palestine and then this radical left-wing organization called Jewish Voice for Peace that actually does have Jewish roots. Both of them are very pro-BDS. And you will sort of see that there is a lot of cross-pollination between those groups. Um, but again, it's, it's pretty confined to the college campuses, thankfully, um, but it is seeping over into academia and we can, we can get into some of that a little bit. Um, a good example of SJP, one of the primary BDS sort of promoters on college campuses, um, they're very active in anti-Israel sentiment, crossing over into anti-Jewish sentiment. So. The SJP chapter at NYU, for instance, 2014, sent eviction notices to Jewish students on campus, um, fake eviction notices to be reminiscent, allegedly, of Israel. Mm -hmm. Um, They also showed up in 2018 at an Israel Independence Day event on NYU campus and started burning Israeli flags. Uh, And then interestingly, NYU gave them a very prestigious award at the college uh, a year later after that event. And it starts to make you wonder the extent to which major universities condone um, this type of behavior. And then you'll also see kind of universities, in addition to having these types of organizations, will also invite pro-BDSers. Actually, it can start with my alma mater at Middlebury. Um, Last year, they invited noted BDS supporter, Angela Davis, to come speak about social justice. Um, This is a woman who defended convicted terrorists, uh, Razmay O'Day and Marwan Margudi, She's also putting that aside, putting aside her defense of terrorists who killed Jews. She also um, was a big activist in the Communist Party USA in the 70s and 80s. She met with communist leaders in East Germany and Cuba. She was a big defender of communist violence. So that alone, I think, should be disqualifying. How could you have this type of woman speak at a, a major liberal arts college in the United States? But again, um, this is the type of, I would say compartmentalizing um, that universities, you know, are, are willing to engage in. Um, that, you know, this woman is a supporter, was a supporter, very active supporter of communist violence, an active supporter of terrorism against Jews, um, she's being invited to speak. And, uh, you know, this isn't, you know, entirely uncommon. Um, you know, how else does this play out? You know, there are also, you'll see instances in which colleges actually don't even allow pro-Israel groups to form. So it's not even that they're supporting pro-BDS groups alone, but they're also stifling pro-Israel sentiment. So in 2019, Williams College, which is actually a peer of Middlebury College, um, denied the request of a student group to receive official recognition. You can imagine that that student group, what it was, was called the Williams Initiative for Israel. It was a promotion of Israel and Israeli culture. Um, There was no reason provided uh, for the decision to deny them official status at Williams. Um, In a break with protocol, uh, they allowed for anonymous voting from student council, and they did not allow the meeting to be publicized. Um, So these are the type of situations you're seeing on college campuses. You know, we've kind of broken it down to, yes, there are pro-BDS groups, Yes, they have pro BDS speakers come to campuses, and then finally, they actually prohibit the creation of pro Israel groups, and they don't give a reason for it.
0: Wow, I mean, that's that's something that we've actually seen um, here at Speech First, and have uh, seen like with the with club recognition and how not only how there's a serious like viewpoint discrimination against Jewish clubs and pro Israel clubs, um, but just how bad actually the student censorship of each other is. Um, so even though, and there's a, There's a number of reasons for this I'll get into in just a minute, but I think what we're seeing right now is like, for example, Pomona College. We saw this at the Claremont Consortium Colleges where they are basically using um, student government associations are using their power of, you know, power of the purse. They control how much clubs get funded every semester to say that if you don't participate in the BDS movement, you don't get club funding this year. So there is a legal concern here because like you said, there's viewpoint discrimination against pro-Israel groups, but there's also a form of compelled speech happening. Um, where are our compelled support of, of a certain movement that people don't agree with. Um, we've seen it with other, other far left agenda items as well. But what fascinates me is that the response of the administration to this is usually kind of, oh, well, we should all debate it. We should all have um, a discussion about it. We should have an open forum. Let's you know, make sure everyone gets to put their opinion in. But really what the response actually should be is, by the way, you know, as your educator, as your primary educator right now, I would like to educate you on the First Amendment um, of the Constitution and kind of just what legal lines you are about to cross here um, as a student government, because these are our future leaders, right? A lot of these guys, especially if they're on student government, they probably, you know, they have a tendency toward leadership roles. They might be running companies down the road or, you know, who knows, get elected to office. And, um, and representing us internationally, dealing with national security issues. And these guys are trying to use means which are completely un-American, unconstitutional to to force um, groups on campus to to bend to their will. I mean, how dangerous is this really? I mean, we're, you know, when you look at what, so one of the things obviously schools are not wanting to educate students on the First Amendment rights. So this is really dangerous with these types of movements on campus because now what we're seeing is anti-Semitic movements are finding favorable conditions um, to progress on campus. So what are your thoughts on all that? Um, I just kind of like to hear, especially from like some of the legal background that you have, just what are the, what are the limitations and, and how bad is this really gonna get with schools?
1: You know, it's interesting. How bad is it gonna get with schools? I'll start there. I've worked with Jewish students on various college campuses, especially during the uh, recent Gaza war. And I can tell you, it's really a matter of numbers. Uh, and in the sense that the progressive onslaught and the progressive pressure uh, is so overwhelming on college campuses that minority interests, minority groups are going to be silenced. And that doesn't matter if it's a Jewish student speaking about being a Zionist or if it's a conservative student speaking about abortion rights. There is such progressive pressure that the silencing of students is only, I think is only going to get worse. And it's really important for organizations like yourself, um, like organizations like Stand With Us that actually work and advocate on behalf of individual groups to be able to speak their mind freely on college campuses. Um, It also doesn't help that you have professors supporting students in this type of I would say, um, progressive shaming. I'm going to give you two examples, again, at Middlebury College, because I'm intimately familiar with that. Um, And I think it's a pretty good, um, it it provides a pretty good example of a prestigious university with with, prestigious alumni uh, that is engaging in the type of silencing and rhetoric that we would not want to see at a top university in the United States, especially with a price tag of over $60,000. The year after, two years after I left Middlebury, uh, Charles Murray was invited to speak and there was a huge uproar. He had spoken in Middlebury before to little, little to no fanfare. His daughter was a graduate of the class of 2007. He was familiar with the Middlebury community. He was actually coming to speak about his book, Coming Apart, which had been published a few years prior about the divisions within American society and how that was playing a role in the 2016 election. He was actually being interviewed by a registered Democrat who was a professor at Middlebury College, and protests broke out. Um, There was some violence involved. Uh, It's unclear whether it was Middlebury students or outside agitators, but the woman who was supposed to interview Charles Murray actually suffered a concussion, um, and she was a professor of political science at the time at Middlebury. Um, There were, basically he was forced and unable to speak because there was so much um, protesting and I would say rioting as well. If there's violence, it turns into rioting. Uh, And it was actually very hard for um, he and the woman who was supposed to interview him to actually escape the premises. And that's when she had her hair pulled and suffered a concussion. Wow. Why, Why does this take place? Why we should unpack a little bit about this. Well, I actually spoke to some students who were on campus at the time, they said prior to the protests and rioting, there were organized meetings taking place between students and professors. So professors had organized three three progressive professors had organized meetups on campus in three different locations where tens of students were joining. And the professors lectured them on Murray's book, The Bell Curve. These students had never read the, the controversial 18 pages in question but they were riled up. They were activated by the professors. You're seeing academia you're, you're seeing academia take a really strong role in actually weaponizing students. And so when these students showed up at this protest, they were filled with all the ideas of their far-left professors. And then they engaged in what would possibly be violence, um, assuming it wasn't outside agitators. And so in my mind, I look at this situation. I say, you have far-left wing professors leading the charge on these types of, of movements and this, types of, this type of silencing and this type of violence. Um, and you know the, the second example I'll give you from Middlebury is during the Gaza War, when there was a rise in anti-Semitic incidents and graffiti being written on campus, you had actual Jewish professors um, lining up to write an op-ed with members of the Students for Justice of Palestine in the Middlebury newspaper. Um, again, this is an instance in which professors are enabling students to engage in bad behavior. I don't want to say it's all of academia, because I will say law schools have been a little bit better on this issue, um, because they're more invested in the free speech issue than I think other professors are. But certainly in the social sciences at both the undergraduate and graduate level, this is becoming increasingly the norm. Uh, And so from a legal standpoint, again, it's not as much of a problem on law school campuses, but when it comes to uh, free speech issues and being able to voice your opinions about certain matters, and even for instance, in the the case of Zionism, many Jews believe Zionism is part of their religious identity. Seeing Israel as the home of the Jewish people, you know, at at Passover we say next year in Jerusalem, um, there is an an element in which, that, you know, there's an element or an aspect of this to which uh, it's, uh, what's the best way to put this, it's important to recognize that people are being silenced, it is a First Amendment violation, and it's really critical that activist groups again like yourself exist in order to advocate uh, on behalf of those who have been silenced. So. Um, You know, these are, I give you these vignettes because I think it's one thing to read about it in an article or a pamphlet or a handout. It's another thing to hear it um, particular, particularized to a college campus itself. Uh, And again, all of these, um, all of the stories I've cited here on the podcast can be found online through very quick Google search. In fact, I've written pieces on these issues in the past.
0: Yeah, that's. I mean, that's fascinating. The the just the lack of response from the administration, and it kind of makes you wonder. I mean, I guess what is how are campuses campus administrators trying to strike this balance between these anti-Semitic groups and Jewish groups? Because obviously, they you know on the campuses, um, despite what's being said in their state, still don't consider anti-Semitism to be um, basically like a form of racism or discrimination against Jews. They they consider it more just kind of you know, clubs that are pro-Palestine, and they, they keep it under that, guys, so, like, how is it, have administrators just been hiding under that, or, you know, how have they responded to professors and to students who are essentially trying to push the Jewish voice out?
1: Uh, you able it at best, they have been hiding behind, you know, the anti-Zionist state statement as being a political sentiment, uh, and that's primarily how they've been dealing with it, Again, it's a matter of numbers. The progressives are just far outweighing the amount of Zionists or Zionist Jews on college campuses. In fact, to be Zionist, you don't have to be Jewish. Um, you know, there are plenty of Christians on college campuses who are pro-Israel who, uh, you know, likely are facing the similar amount of silencing that we're seeing, you know, for Jewish students in particular. So they aren't balancing it. Is is the best way to answer it and the way they're not balancing it is going back to, you know, what I said prior, they're either allowing these, they're defending the, these groups um, and allowing them to get away with making anti-Semitic statements under the cloak of anti-Zionism, or they're just not allowing pro-Israel groups to form on campus. Um, so if you want free speech, if you truly want free speech, you have to allow all voices in the marketplace. Uh, and in this particular instance, when we talk about voices, voices of political thought. I don't believe Jew hatred is a political thought. And again, as I said earlier, perfectly fine to criticize the state of Israel, perfectly fine to make statements about Israel's politics that you may have issues with. We do that with all countries. We should do that. It's a healthy exercise. Um, These are not political statements. From the river to the sea is not a political statement. Um, It's a statement of genocide. And so that is the difference and to see universities cower and defend those types of statements, um, while preventing other groups from being able to form and speak their minds is where it becomes uh, problematic. And so I think um, it's a lot of times what you're seeing as well as Jewish students in particular are being asked to leave their Jewish identity at the door, in order to, you know, embrace Political progressivism. So I think that's also a balancing act that a lot of Jewish students are dealing with right now. Um, you can't be, you know, as Ilan, Om, or was it Ilan? No, as um, Linda Sarsor said, you can't be a feminist and a Zionist, suggesting that progressivism was incompatible with being pro Israel. Never mind that Israel is the only state in the Middle East in which it is okay to be a Christian, it is okay to be gay, it is okay to be X, Y, and Z. Um, so the actual protection of identities that only takes place in Israel. So it's ironic to me that the progressive movement has such a level of hypocrisy where if you're progressive, you can't support the only state in the Middle East that actually is quintessentially progressive, uh, remarkable, absolutely astounding level of mental gymnastics.
0: Yeah. I really want to dig into that actually a little bit, um, why is there this tendency on the progressive left to be anti-Semitic? Um, and, and I just—is it an anti-religion thing? Is it that they're just—they just don't believe in you know religion in general, or that they kind of want to pull away from that and they don't like some of the 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 kind of the standards, the cultural standards that come out from the Jewish people? Or is it more—is um, it more just kind of like an identity um, that they can kind of pick on because they? Jews tend to be white in America? or I'm curious what your thoughts on all of that.
1: A few things. So the first one is that we're seeing the BLM paradigm of oppressor and oppressed, um, brown versus white, uh, being applied to a very complicated conflict in the Middle East, namely the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, never mind the fact that many Israelis wouldn't be considered, quote unquote, white by a lot of standards. Um, Many are from throughout the Middle East, they identify as Iraqi Jews, Iranian Jews, Afghan Jews, Egyptian Jews, Moroccan Jews, they're all living in Israel, they wouldn't be necessarily considered white, um, quintessentially, and so that in and of itself, kind of, I would say messes up the BLM paradigm, but I think it's it's part of this larger Marxist initiative to look at the world through this this prism of oppressor and oppressed. Um, and the idea behind it is that whoever has more power in this situation is in the wrong. Um, and so it doesn't matter if the individual or the entity that has more power is morally righteous or the individual or entity acquired that power through moral means, uh, it's still seen as the amoral, um, the amoral entity. So I think that's been the driving force behind a lot of progressive politics and a lot of progressive analyses of different issues is using this power structure and applying it to every single conflict. And you have to give them credit. It's a very easy way of looking at the world because you can kind of figure out who's good and who's evil by just applying this metric. Who has more power? That's the evil person. Um, And so, you know, I think that that's also part of the problem. The other thing I will say is that um, Identity politics have played a huge role in the publication and discussion of anti-Semitic crimes in the United States. Um, So there were, uh, in 2019, there there was a wave of anti-Semitic incidents in Brooklyn and Queens in predominantly Jewish neighborhoods. And the vast majority of um, the crimes, I I think uh, National Review had a very good piece on this. It was unfortunate, but the vast majority of crimes were committed by people of color. And this put the left in a very unfortunate sort of battle between, you know, they've been um, very pro-identity politics. And at the same time, that pro-identity politics stance does not have room for Jews in it. And they were in a very uncomfortable position. They were not able to talk about these issues. And so Bill de Bla- Mayor Bill de Blasio actually did an interview while, these, while this crime wave was happening and he said, Uh, oh, well, you know, there's been a rise of white nationalism. And I listened to this interview and I said, are you really that obtuse? You haven't done any research into this crime wave that's taking place in your own city. And you'd rather just blame Trump and white nationalism when that's clearly not what's happening here. Um, You had Jews having bricks being thrown at their heads. You had synagogues being um, defaced uh, and destroyed. You had school buses of children, having of, of Jewish kids having rocks thrown at it. And again, a major city uh, in the United States. And you had the mayor pontificating nonsensically about white nationalism, when that had virtually nothing to do with what was happening. I saw the same thing take place at actually a congressional hearing, where you had the head of the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, speaking about anti-Semitism in the United States, and again, obsessing over white nationalism. And I was sitting there flabbergasted because this again, was the same year, 2019, and I just described to you kind of how it had nothing to do, you know, these events had little to nothing to do with white nationalism, and yet you had a major leader within the Jewish community pontificating about white nationalism when this was not an instance of white nationalism. None of these crimes were. Um, There's a real disconnect on the left and an inability to talk about these issues with any real clarity because they siloed people into oppressor and oppressed categories and if a certain crime or a certain incident doesn't fit those categories they're virtually unwilling to talk about it because it completely destroys their worldview and completely destroys their paradigm and then they'll have to start back at square one and so in order to sell their lousy ideas they have to make sure just not to talk about anything that contravenes or goes against the narrative that they've put forth and I think the wave of crime against Jews, um, 2019 and two, in 2020 in New York, perfectly crystallized the problem and the inability of the left to talk about issues if it doesn't fit their worldview.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great way of characterizing it. I mean, honestly, this is identity politics you know, at its finest and that's just a worldview that is incredibly simplistic. It's a very simple way of looking at the world and looking at human behavior. Um, which we know is very complex. And we still, to this day, don't fully understand it. We don't understand each other. That's why relationships are always so complicated, but yet we want to paint everything black and white, good and bad. And we just want the answers to, to kind of come from all of that, um, come from all of, all of that kind of like viewpoint. Um, It's, it's basically just the path of least resistance, like the easiest way to look at the world, Um, which honestly, it makes sense that our generation, this is the time that we're gonna see it because when you look around us, how, how easy are things, right? Um, we're, we're, it's a complacent society, it's a lazy society and people want things more easily. They want, they want answers more easily. And you know, that's why movements like the identity politics movement is, is doing so well in society today just because it's an easy answer. Um, and it's, it's really feeding on kind of that lazy, laziness and that complacency.
1: Um, Very appealing. It has a lot of appeal to young people um, because it also helps them to assuage any guilt that they might have about the success of the United States. It helps them feel as if they're dealing with that guilt uh, necessarily. And we have created a guilt over being exceptional. We have created a guilt over power. We have created a guilt, even again, even if that power is achieved through moral means, we have established a guilt complex. Um, that's why we have you know, participation awards. That's why we have instances in which anyone who excels in anything in particular in any meaningful way uh, is, faces the risk of being shamed. That's why you're having uh, programs in public schools and going back to New York, programs in public schools uh, in places like New York and California that are for you know, exceptional students or advanced students, you're seeing those programs wiped out. Uh, Because there's now, we've created a society, which is very dangerous. We've created a society which uh, shames exceptionalism. Uh, And I think, you know, that's going to pose much bigger problems down the road. But that all ties into this obsession with the power uh, or the oppressor and oppressed paradigm. Um, And it has a lot of negative externalities associated with it.
0: Yeah, no, that's... um... That, so that kind of leads me to my next question we're talking about exceptionalism and kind of just um our nation's role in the world uh and i'm curious because you work on a lot of national security issues as well at ginsa um, is anti-semitic sentiment in the u.s a national security issue and if so how i know that's going to take us down a whole another conversation but i'm really curious what your thoughts are on this well we can scratch the
1: surface for sure so you know facially it would seem kind of silly but it's actually, you know, it's an excellent question, and I don't think it gets asked enough when we discuss anti Semitism or the BDS movement. Um, you know, first off, insofar as it's possible to put it this way, a ton of anti Semitic groups and BDS groups, if you actually look at their manifestos, um, they're very anti Western. Most BDS groups are anti capitalist, anti Western. So, from a like societal cohesion standpoint, um, they very much have strong antipathy towards Western ideals, towards the values that make uh, America great. Now, you're allowed to be dissident, so by all means they can have that level of dissidence, but that's just a fact. So why is that a problem? Well, it drives them to engage in behaviors that are unbecoming and do pose national security risks. It's one thing to you know, say you're anti-Western, it's another thing to actually meet with terrorist organizations, which is what actual BDS groups have done. So for instance, The BDS group called Dream Defenders, they've actually met directly with members of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which is an an FTO by the US State Department, a foreign terrorist organization. Um, I'm not gonna bore you by walking you through every single connection, but I encourage anyone who's interested in listening, do a quick search of BDS and terrorist organizations because there's a ton of cross-pollination, a ton of leadership within the BDS movement has connections to terrorist organizations. And so, again, it's not a problem to to have anti-Western sentiment. We're a free country. You can believe whatever you want. It's when that anti-Western sentiment um, you know, turns into action and when it actually drives different BDS groups to actually meet with terrorist organizations um, to foment connections and ties with terrorist organizations. That's where it's inherently a problem.
0: Yeah, I know that's disconcerting. I think uh, one of the biggest things people can do is also follow the money. I mean, that's... Yeah you're going to see that's going to be tied directly to Hamas and Iran and anyone who's, you know, trying to overthrow um, U.S. influence in the world, essentially. Um, so it's, it's I think it's a serious national security issue. Um, and, and I think you're absolutely right. We could do a whole other show on that, honestly, like you said, because there's so many examples of this.
1: <laughs> yes, there are. And it's like, like you said, it's, it's, it's political, it's, they're using the idea of political thought to mask actually really pernicious and dangerous behaviors. And so that, in and of itself, I think, again, is where the problem is and the national security risk. And we've created this class of untouchables, um, or the left has created a class of untouchables. And they can engage in all sorts of national security, um, you know, nat- I would say nationally, uh, behavior that is a risk to na- US national security and be considered engaging in political thought is completely ridiculous.
0: Yeah, no, it's, I kind of want to close with a, with a slightly different topic, but it's going to go a little bit more into history, which is just, why do we always see history repeating itself with the Jewish people? And we've talked a little bit about the kind of the history of using Israel as an excuse to discriminate against Jews, but this is going on, this has been going on a long time before Israel. So why is this? And I'm sure a lot of our listeners and viewers are kind of um, especially those who are not practicing the Jewish faith, it's, it's very curious, you know, it's kind of like, why is it always the Jews? Um, so I'm kind of curious, what are your thoughts on that?
1: I don't have a good answer to it. Uh, all I can say is that our generations, again, the repository for our generation and probably the next one for Jew hatred will be Israel. Uh, and I think it's unfortunate, but it will continue to be a cultural wedge issue in a way it wasn't in, in the past. I think that there is an implicit acceptance now in media culture and in political culture, especially on the left, not really on the right, but especially on the left of anti-Semitic rhetoric and it being normalized. You're having people in Congress normalizing it. Uh, I don't have a good answer for why it happens through the ages. All I can say is that there is, you know, post-Holocaust, in order to be anti-Semitic, individuals and entities had to get more creative about how they could express their anti-Semitism. So now you're just seeing it in EU labeling laws, and that's become sort of a pressure valve for anti-Semitism within the European Union. And in the same way you're seeing the proliferation of anti-Israel sentiment, that's the same sort of pressure valve. So I guess my, my, only, my only clip here would be that you're going to see it manifest itself in a variety of ways. That doesn't mean that there's a boogeyman behind every corner, and I can't stress that enough. Um, you, it, it hurts, it's damaging to um, the effort of going after anti-Semitism to claim every criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic, and that in and of itself is a problem and a whole, again, we could have a whole podcast about that. That's a huge issue too, um, and that's damaging to actual honest discussions about anti-Semitism. Uh, but the idea that um, you know, it's becoming mainstreamed through a new vehicle, uh, I'm just curious what the next vehicle will be because I do wonder if the left will get tired of talking about Israel. I do wonder if their hypocrisy will wear them out because they don't talk about Western Sahara. They don't talk about any other areas of quote-unquote occupation. Um, I wonder if their hypocrisy will catch up with them eventually, uh, but for now, they seem to have something reasonable to chew on um, and I, you know, the, the best thing you can do in the face of these types of um, rhetoric and this type of narrative is to speak the truth. Yeah,
0: yeah. no, absolutely. Um, yeah. Speaking the truth, that is, and actually speaking up, um, if, you, if you, especially if you want to speak about the truth, that's, don't let them chill your speech. Don't let them scare you into silence. Um, it is important that, you know, truth prevails. Obviously, we've seen, like I said, complacency is a huge issue right now. Um, that's, you know, why we have this show, that's why we have, uh, Speech First, all these organizations exist to, to encourage people to speak up. Um, yeah, poke
1: oh, I, around, poke around your college, like your former yeah. alma mater, see who they're inviting as guests. If they're inviting someone who loves terrorists, they have every right to do that, but you have every right to publicly lambaste them. That's the beautiful, that's the beautiful element of, uh, speech is yeah, that yeah. you have every right to publicly criticize them for inviting a terrorist lover.
0: So you should do that. Absolutely. Um, Okay, so thank you so much, Ariel, for being on with us. This is Well Said, a biweekly live show where I interview policy experts, commentators, academics, students, and activists on higher education, free speech, related topics in American culture and policy. Um, So you can share this episode on Facebook or YouTube. Also, we have podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Anchor. You can download it, share it, give us a five-star rating if you like what you heard today. I'm Sharice Trump, and Ariel, that was Well Said. Thanks so much. Thanks.